Lord, that is our, our heart to, to serve you, to know you, to love you. You're a great and an awesome God. And Lord, I pray right now as we go to this time of your word that, that Lord, for the sake of your people, that you would use this marred vessel, Lord, that you would speak in a mighty and a powerful way to every single heart that's here. Lord, we just ask your blessing upon this time. Be with our children as well as those minister to our kids. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Santa Cruz. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans 9. If you don't have one, raise your hand, and we'll get you one. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. Um, One quick announcement from my heart. Hey, as as you know, our church continues to grow, and, and it's a blessing. And with that... Our children's ministry has need. So just be praying about it. Um, I may have shared with some of you guys, I remember when I was four and a half years old, Mrs. Green, and it's, you know, people think it's crazy that I remember it, but I absolutely do. Before God, I remember it clearly. Her putting up the little flannel board, sitting around a table with six or seven other kids at the First Baptist Church of Wilmington, and her sharing the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ and giving us an opportunity to know Him. And I raised my little hand and... She prayed the sinner's prayer with me, and then she took me back in a little room and gave me a little white Bible and made me understand what it meant to be a Christian. And, you know, here, here we are a lot of years later, 37 years later, and here we are, and, and this is fruit of her ministry. And, you know, what a privilege it is to teach children the, the Word of God. So I want to just pray about it. Last week, I think we had 24 kids in the nursery, which is awesome. This means the church is growing, Amen. But just be praying about how you might want to get involved. And remember, my heart is that it would not be the moms. Now, again, I'm not saying moms if you want to serve that you can't, but my heart would be that you'd be able to come after taking care of your kids all week and just be blessed. And those of us who maybe our kids are older or maybe college-age folks that don't have any kids yet, it'd be great if we could bless the moms who have, you know, are changing diapers all week and let them just come in here and be ministered to. Amen? All right. Romans chapter 9. Now, Romans, Romans, as we've seen so far, what a great and awesome book. It's really the great, just the, the picture of the doctrines or the teachings of God's Word, the truth that we see. And we saw, in, again, the Gospels, the person of Christ and who He is. And then we, when we get to the book of Acts, we saw the moving of the Holy Spirit. And now as we get to Romans, we look at the different doctrines, and, it, and the way that they're arranged, of course, being in, in the Bible, is perfect. The first doctrine we saw in chapters 1 through 3 was the doctrine of sin, that we are all sinners in need of a Savior, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We then moved on, and praise God, it doesn't leave us there, because that would be no good. It just left us all in our sin, but praise God, it moves on from the doctrine of sin to the doctrine of salvation. Again, that we can be justified just as if we've never sinned. Not because of our good works, but because of His good work. So we move from the doctrine of sin to the doctrine of salvation, and then we move on to the doctrine of what is called sanctification. Not just Christ dying for me, but Christ living in me. And what we need to understand is we're justified, again, not by our good works. It's not do, 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 but it's done. It's not faith plus works, or faith or works. It's faith that works. But we see that once we have been justified, we begin that sanctification process where we become more and more like Jesus. You know, if you've been walking with the Lord for a week, a month, or ten years, you should be closer to the Lord today than you were yesterday. Amen? You know, it's been said that Christianity is like a grease pole. You're either climbing up or sliding down. You can't stay in the same spot. Amen? You're either growing in your relationship with the Lord or you're falling away. And as we got to that doctrine of sanctification, it was all about living those set-apart lives. And we saw some of the different you know, obstacles that faced Christians, some of the different extremes. One of them was license, which was, hey, I've been born again, so I can live however I want. And I got the get-out-of-hell-free card, and so I can just go for it, man. I can be just like the world. But God did not save you so you could be like the world. Amen? He saved you out of this world. He saved you to be that you are a new creation in Christ. You need to be salt and light to a lost and a dying world. But then we saw the other extreme, which is legalism. Where license says, hey, I got to get out of hell free card. I can live whatever I want. Legalism would say, even though that Jesus died on the cross, that's not enough. There must be all these other things and rules and regulations that you must keep to inherit eternal life. Now, I want to make this really clear. We are saved by grace And God wants and desires that we walk in holiness before Him. But it's not our walk that saves us. It's not the work that saves us. It's His work upon the cross. 
But because we've been justified, we're in that sanctification process, and we should be serving God with our whole heart. Now, last week in Romans chapter 8, what a great chapter, Romans chapter 8. Again, just one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. If you weren't here, there's tapes in the back and CDs, and they're always free, so help yourself. But we saw that after justification and sanctification, that truly we have been set free. And last week we saw how we've been set free from both the past, the present, and in the future. You know, people walk around and they're condemned and they're depressed and they're anxious and they're fearful and they're worried. And fear, anxiety, and worry are all the opposite of faith because God truly is sovereign and He's in control. We're going to talk about that more today. But we saw last week in dealing with the past that we're indwelt by the Spirit and we're no longer condemned. That's why we don't have to go and sit down with somebody and dredge up our past and go through 20 sessions to overcome it. The Bible says you're a new creation in Christ. Amen? Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And because of that, you leave those things which are behind and you press on to that upward calling in Christ Jesus. And too many people are bound in their past. He died for it. Amen? When he said it's finished, he wasn't kidding. Amen? It's finished. So we're not condemned by our past, and we should not be worried about our present. Because all things work together for good for those who trust in God and call it according to His purpose. Amen? It said in Romans 8.28 that God's faithful. All that happens in my life is ultimately for His glory. I need to learn to trust Him. And then finally, we should not also be anxious about our future. Because we saw last week the promise of God that nothing can separate us from His love. For Christians, we close our eyes on earth and we open them up in heaven. Amen? I mean, it's just moving day, right? You close your eyes, you open them up, you're in His glory. So, past has been taken care of, we're no longer condemned. We need not worry about the present because all things work together for good. And we have the hope of heaven before us. And that should help us to live those sanctified lives, not overcome by the cares of this world. Now this morning, we're going to move on. We've looked at the doctrine of sin. And we've looked at the doctrine of salvation, and we've looked at the doctrine of sanctification, and we're going to be, in a few weeks, starting to look at the doctrine of service, the natural outpouring of living a sanctified life. But it seems like right here for three chapters that Paul seems to step back for a second, and instead of going to the natural next thing, he steps back and he speaks to Israel. He speaks to the Jews, and he talks to them about the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Now, sovereignty is just a big word that means that God is in control. It means that God knows everything, God is in charge, and we can trust Him. And again, truly all things work together for good for those who trust in God. And so we'll see that Paul, this this religious Pharisee in in his past, is writing to his own people now. And it's been said, you know, that remember how the Jews had treated him, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but we'll see that Paul's heart still broke for them. And we'll see that no longer is it a, a, a gospel for the Jews only, but it's for Jew and Gentile alike. But because it's for us, doesn't mean it's no longer for the Jews. And so we're going to see three chapters in dealing with the sovereignty of God and Him addressing the children of Israel. So here's what we're going to look at in chapter 9. I titled the message, appropriately enough, The Sovereignty of God. And God's sovereignty, again, is His foreknowledge, His predestination, His election, His choosing... But we'll also see that that is always balanced with the responsibility of man or free will. We have an ability to accept Christ. He died and He chose us that we might be redeemed in Him, but He will never force salvation on anyone. God doesn't put you in a corner and beat you up until you accept Him. He loves you. He offers His salvation universally, but it must be accepted individually. So here's what we're going to see as we look at God's sovereignty in regards to the nation of Israel. First, we're going to see Paul's burden for his people. Then we're going to see that we're either children of the flesh or children of the promise. Then we'll see God's mercy as he, again, deals with the justice in his people. And then finally, we'll see that he's the potter, we're the clay, the Gentiles will be called sons of God, God's grace towards the Jews, and finally, righteousness is by faith and not by the law. So let's begin in chapter 9, looking at the sovereignty of God. And we'll begin by looking at Paul's burden for his brethren. Look at verse 1 and 2. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Now you need to understand that Paul does a 180 here. Because how did he end chapter 8? If you look back up in, in verse 
38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Right? That's exciting. And look at the next word. And I tell you the truth, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. He moves from rejoicing in chapter 8 from joy to grieving and sorrow in his heart over the brethren. Again, he has peace in Christ. We have nothing that can separate us from him. But at the same time, when he looks at Jesus, he rejoices. But when he looked at the children of Israel, his heart was broken. Paul was a man, when he looked at the Lord, he rejoiced. He was so, yeah, man, God, you're so great. And then he would look at his own brethren who were dying without, without the Lord, and his heart was broken. You know, as spirit-filled believers in Christ, we can rejoice in God's grace and in the joy of our salvation and be grieved and burdened for the lost all at the same time. You can have great joy and be excited about who you are in Christ, that you're born again, that you're going to heaven, but your heart can still be broken for those around you who don't know the Lord. This is where Paul's at. He's rejoicing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. What a great thing, but my heart is broken for the Jews. My heart is broken for my brothers. In, in of, of the flesh, those who are born of the same heritage that I have. You know, can I tell you that as Christians, I believe that we, we don't have enough of it today. I want to exhort you and exhort me. We need to be more heartbroken over the lost than we are. Amen? Do you know that hell's a real place? It's a real place. And it's not for two hours or two days or two years or two millenniums. It's forever and ever and ever. And while we're sitting in this room, thousands of people will go into separation from Almighty God for all eternity, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our heart ought to be broken over that. We should be praying for the lost, and we should not be so concerned about being popular with men that we're afraid that we might offend somebody. You know what? Praise God that somebody loved you enough to share the gospel with you, and what, it wasn't so worried about you being offended, but because they loved you, they preached the truth without compromise. Amen? And so too, we need to do the same with those around us. Start looking for those divine appointments. Paul was rejoicing in the Lord, and his heart was broken for the lost all at the same time. Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Here we see the depth of his burden for the lost. Much like Moses back in Exodus 32, who interceded on behalf of the children of Israel, who were deserving of God's righteous wrath, for worshiping the golden calf. You remember that story? Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and they're all around the golden calf and they're dancing and they're partying and they're drunken and they're worshiping this, this false idol. I mean, they just went through the Red Sea. They just got delivered out of bondage. Moses goes away for 40 days and Aaron, his assistant pastor, makes a golden calf and they're all worshiping. If I come back from vacation, you guys are in big trouble, all right? But here's what happens. So Moses comes down and he sees this. And again, he, he initially throws the tablets down and he's, oh. But remember what happened. God said, I'll just wipe him out, Moses, and I'll start with you. You know, let's just, let's just start over. Right? And Moses says, oh, no, Lord. God was not going to wipe him out. God made promises to them, but he was testing Moses' heart. And Moses said, let me be accursed in their place. Well, Paul had the same heart. Paul was so broken for the lost that he said, if I could, I am willing that I would be cursed in their place. The word accursed there in the Greek is a word many of you have heard before. It's anathema. Ever heard of that word? He said, I will be an anathema. I'll be accursed if they can know you, Lord. What an awesome guy Paul was. What an incredible man. He was willing to stay out of heaven for the sake of the saved. Philippians chapter 1, for I am hard pressed between the two having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. He was willing to stay. He could go to heaven and he said, you know what, God wants me to stay to minister to you. So he's willing to forsake heaven for the moment to minister to believers, but at the same time, he was willing to go to hell for the sake of the lost. I'm going to tell you something right now. I'm not willing to do that. Sorry. No thanks. Not me. Maybe I need to be way more spiritual than I am, but hell's the last place I even want to think. I'm not going there. No thanks. Amen? Not interested. Now, I want to see as many people go to heaven with me as possible, but I'm not trading. 
No, uh-uh, no, I'm going, you go with me if you want, let's go, right, amen, let's go together. But can you imagine the depths of the burden that Paul must have had? Now, who does he have this burden for? The Jews. Now, remember, how have the Jews been treating him lately? How's that been working out? These are the same guys that had him arrested. These are the same guys in the book of Acts that were pulling, they were holding his arms and legs and trying to pull him into pieces. A, a group of these guys had taken a vow that we're not going to eat or drink till we kill him. We want this guy dead. Can you, now, he has a burden to say, I'll go to hell in their place. Think of the person that gives you the greatest amount of grief. Think about the most difficult person in your life or in your past and think, I'm willing to go to hell in their place. Man, that's, I'm not there. How about you? How many of you guys want to, you know what I'm saying, right, man? But here's Paul. These guys want to kill him, and he says, oh, Lord, I'll be accursed that they might know you. Wow. What an awesome guy Paul really is. But here's the reality. Paul was willing to do this, but there was no need for him to do it. Why? Because Jesus had already done it. Amen? Paul didn't have to be accursed. Paul didn't have to have anyone's sin accounted to him because Jesus had already taken the curse of all mankind upon himself when he suffered and died on the cross. Now, what is it that makes it possible for Paul to look at people that persecute him, people that want to kill him, people that hate him, and have him love him with such a depth that he'd willingly die and even be separated from God for all eternity in their place? What is it about Paul? I think we find the answer in Romans 10.1, and what it tells us is that he prayed for them. You want your heart to change toward those who persecute you? Start praying for them. Start praying for them. Start interceding on their behalf. Start. And you know what's going to happen? Prayer doesn't change God's mind. What does it do? Changes what? Our hearts. Our hearts change. Our passions change. Our desires change. And that's exactly what had happened to Paul. Paul's desire, again, reveals that heart of compassion, but his request was neither possible nor necessary as Christ had already paid it. But again, what a picture of his heart and his burden for the Jews. Again, he had grown up with them. He'd been taught the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a man who knew it. He was a man who was zealous for it. He was a man who attacked Christians. And now, even though he's been born again, he looks back at his past and he has a burden for him. And that is what God would desire that each one of us would have. Verse 4. Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises? You know what he says? Israel has been blessed. There is no nation in the history of the world that's been more blessed than Israel. Amen? And there never will be. Now, what did Israel have? He breaks it down here. Listen, listen to this. First of all, they had adoption, which means they had become his children. What do they call the children of Israel, right? They're called the children of God. You see them in the Old Testament, God's children, God's chosen people. And not only did he adopt them and choose them, but second of all, it says he gave them his glory. If you've been coming on Wednesday nights in the Old Testament time, they were led through the wilderness by the word there is kabod, which means weightiness or substance. And it's God's weightiness, God's glory dwelling in their midst. And everywhere they went, God led them, God dwelt with them. So they've been adopted. They're his children. God is dwelling with them. He's leading them every step of the way. His presence is there in the tabernacle and later in the temple. They could see the Shekinah glory of God, the pillar of fire, the cloud, and they followed him. Are they blessed? Children of Israel, adopted into his family, and also his glory dwelling with them. But that's still not enough. Look what else it says there. Thirdly, they have covenants. These are God's promises. He made a covenant with Abraham, one with Isaac, Jacob, David. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. He said, I will curse those who curse you and I will bless those who bless you. Has there ever been a nation more blessed than Israel? The answer is no. Fourthly, he gave them the law. What is the law? The law and the prophets is another name for the Old Testament. 
The Mosaic laws, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He gave them the Ten Commandments, but he also gave them the law. He gave them his word to reveal himself to them. Again, if you've been coming on Wednesday night, you see Jesus in every chapter of the Old Testament. He's there over and over and over and over again. And what's awesome is he had given them, again, his glory dwelling with them. They're his children adopted by him, made covenants with them, and now also gave them the law that they might clearly know him. But even that was not enough. Then he gave them the opportunity to serve him. You know, there's no greater thing in the world than serving the Lord. Nothing more satisfying in life. Nothing. I don't care what else you do with your life. Nothing else has, a, first of all, a greater eternal significance and satisfies more now than serving the Lord. Now, man, I can't tell you what a privilege it is to serve God. And we all have that honor. And so did the children of Israel. And lastly, they had His promises that Israel would blossom and bud, that they would fill the face of the earth with fruit. And it's interesting that that's true even today. The third, the, I don't know if you've ever been to Israel. Israel's like the size of New Jersey, all right? And it's the focal point of the entire world, Israel. And you know what's interesting about that little nation? It's the third largest exporter of fruit in the world. Do you know it can grow? Every kind of fruit that can be grown on this planet can be grown in that little spot of the world called Israel. It can grow the cold weather fruits like apples and tropical fruits like pineapples. Why? God's chosen. Now, isn't that awesome? Look at God's blessings upon Israel. He said, look at who they are. Look at God's his glory adopted, his children. What a blessing, giving them the law, his promises, his covenants. But how did Israel respond to all that? How have they responded? Is Israel walking with God today? What's the answer? They're in total rebellion. You know what this shows us? That while God is sovereign and God loves Israel and God loves and chooses us, he will never force us to serve him. Israel has free will. You and I have free will. All that God had given them, all the revelation that he had brought before them, and yet they still did not serve him and they still missed out on the Messiah. Look, here's the greatest gift of all. Look at verse 5. Of whom are the fathers from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So not only do they have all the other blessings I just told you about, but the Messiah came out of the, the Jews, came from the Jewish line. Jesus, the Messiah, the greatest of all by far, God in the flesh, born of a Jewish mother, grew up in a Jewish home, went to a Jewish school, sat in and taught later in, a Jew, in Jewish synagogues, ministered to Jewish people. Matthew 15, Jesus said, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel. They're his people. He loves them so very much. And how do they respond to Jesus? They rejected him. This shows again the sovereignty of God and his desire that none should perish, no, not one but also the free will of both nations and of individuals. That we can accept Him or reject Him, but it's up to us. And it says there, who is over all, the eternally blessed God, amen. And literally, it says, if you look at it in the original language, it better written, who is God over all, eternally blessed. One of the strongest and clearest affirmations of Christ's deity. And he's saying, God came out of the people. Is there ever been a land more blessed than Israel? The answer is no. And sadly, a vast majority of the Jews denied Jesus Christ and still do today. Now do you understand why Paul's heart was broken? Paul said, guys, you're the most blessed of all people, and yet you missed him. Man, Lord, if I could be a curse for them, open their eyes. And we should be praying for the Jews and praying for Israel that their eyes would be open. And sadly, again, in spite of it all, most of them rejected him, pointing again to the free will of man, chosen universally but must be accepted individually. So we move on now from, from seeing his burden for Israel, and now we're going to move on and look at the children of the flesh or the children of promise, the difference between natural and spiritual children of Abraham. Look at verse 6. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now first of all, there are some of the Jews that obviously got saved. Who's writing this book? Paul. 
He was a Jew, right? Amen? What about the apostles? What about most of the first century church? What were they? Jews. So praise God, he's saying, not that the word of God was of no effect, not that some didn't receive, but a vast majority did not. Has anything changed? A vast majority still reject the truth today. And again, not as if the Jews imagined the word of God must fail if all their nation would be saved. Some thought if, you know, if, if all the nation isn't saved, then God's word has somehow failed. It's not God who's failed, it's man who's rejected. God has not failed. We have. Amen? God is faithful. We're not. And the word there, it says, not all who are all of Israel who are of Israel. What does Israel mean? Israel means governed by God. Not all who are born of Israel are governed by God. Not all who have the lineage of saying, I'm of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are those who are governed by God spiritually. They are born physically, but, not have, been, but have not been born again spiritually. Just like today. Not everybody who calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. Amen? Is that true or what? You know, the Gallup poll a few years back said 87% of the United States, people in the United States, call themselves Christians. That is the biggest joke I've ever heard in my life. I wish that was true, but it's not even close. You could probably move a decimal point over. Make it like 8.7%. Because here's the reality. By your fruit they shall know you. Amen? Is this a godly country? Are we serving and honoring the Lord? Are we getting further and further away from Him every single day? And the same was true. In Paul's day, his heart was broken because they were physically Jews, but they were not Israel spiritually. And we can be born in a Christian nation. I used to have a co-worker that told me, well, I'm a Christian because I was born in America. <laughs> what? I, I couldn't choose whether I was a Christian anymore than I could choose the size of my foot, he once told me. Dude, God loves you and he suffered and died that you might have eternal life, but he will never force salvation on you. Amen? And we have a choice to make to re reject or accept that great and awesome work of the cross. Let me ask you a question. Are you governed by God? Are you of Israel in a sense? Have you been born again? Or are you a Christian in name because of the home you live in? Or because you go to church sometimes? Again, we must understand it's more than what we call ourselves, but how we live our lives. It's not that the word has taken no effect again because many of the Jews were saved, much of the first century church. But not all who said they were Israel were truly Israel, verse 7 and 8. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are children of the flesh that are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Not all the physical descendants of Abraham were spiritual children of God. And God is not establishing a physical bond, but a spiritual one. Remember that that Abraham had two sons, right? First two sons. Who were they? Who was the first one? Ishmael. Now, how did Ishmael come into being? Not good. God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, man. I'm going to bless you. And your, your descendants are going to be the sand, like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. And a little time went by, and his old wife, it says, and them nearly dead. That's what it says in the text, right? And them as good as dead, as a matter of fact, what it says. 100 years old. And he's like, maybe God needs some help. And his wife comes to him and says, hey, we got that fine Egyptian woman working for us over here. Hagar, why don't you go sleep with her? And Abraham goes, all right. Great spiritual leader in the home, right? His wife said, go up. Oh, that sounds pretty good. I think I'll go do that. Typical guy, right? And sadly, we know that because of that, Ishmael was born, and we're still dealing with that today. Amen? We were over in Israel. They had us go, and this guy pretends to be Abraham, and you go, you go have dinner in these tents, and you look out on the land that Abraham once traveled on. And we're sitting in there, and this guy comes in, and he's in Abraham mode. And you're you know, they make you wear these, these uh, clothes from those days, and you ride camels down there. It was actually kind of cool. And we're sitting there, and he's, being, he's in his Abraham you know, character. And finally, I raised my hand and said, dude, what's up with Hagar, man? What were you thinking? And he went, oh, but oy vey, that was no good idea, right? And the reality is that today, all, all of Israel, who are, their, who are their enemies? 
the Arabs. And who are the Arabs descendants of? Ishmael. Now again, because of who our lineage is does not determine who we are spiritually. Are there born-again people with Arab descent? Absolutely. Does Jesus love them just as much as he loves everybody else? Without question. Amen? We need to make sure we don't start looking at people you know, in nationalistic ways. We understand that salvation comes through Christ. And, that, and his desire that none should perish, no, not one. But because of his disobedience, because he didn't wait upon the Lord, and it says there, in Isaac your seed shall be called. So who's the son of promise? Isaac. In Genesis 22, he told him, take now thine son, thy only son Isaac. Was Ishmael alive? Yeah. But in God's eyes, he had one son, the son of promise. And those who were born through Isaac were the true children of Israel. But again, we need to understand that born of the flesh or born of the spirit. Consequences still, again, evident today. We need to understand that true salvation doesn't come through physical birth, but spiritual rebirth. Remember Nicodemus went to Jesus in John chapter 3? said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, you must be what? Born again. How can I crawl back into my mother's womb? He said, no, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So too with Israel. Just because they were born of the seed of Abraham does not make them children of God. They had to be born again. And so too it is with you and I. Now we'll notice here that that Sarah gave birth, and her name means princess, by the way. She gave birth to Isaac. Hagar, her name means stranger, and she gave birth to one who would not be the child of promise. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also is conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It is said to her, the older shall serve the younger. It is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. So not only did Abraham have two sons, one was used mightily by God, and one was in total rebellion against God, so too it's true of the twins born to Isaac, Esau and Jacob. Now a lot of people struggle with this text. Because does it seem fair that while they were in their mother's womb, before they had done good or bad, it says right here in the text, that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. This is where the Calvinist would tell you, see, God chose some for salvation and he chose others with no chance of knowing him. Can I tell you that that is so contrary to the rest of the Bible? Amen? Our God loves his desire that none should perish, no, not one. Amen? For God so loved the elect or the world, the world, that he gave his only begotten son. So how is it that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated? How is that? Let me tell you how. Because God is a God of sovereignty and he is a God of foreknowledge. Does God know what kind of man Esau is going to be? Does he know what kind of man Jacob's going to be? Did he know what kind of man or woman you were going to be before he even created the world? The answer is yes. Now, based on his foreknowledge of the fact that Jacob would follow him and that Esau would rebel against him, he chose Jacob. So God chooses based upon our either rejection or acceptance of his work. Because God sees beforehand and people struggle, well, wait a minute, how can God predestined and God foreknow and we still have free will because he's God. Amen? We try to think with a finite mind, right? And by the way, compared to God, we're idiots. Amen? So we try to take these little finite minds and we try to understand infinite God. And we say, well, it's impossible that God could know the future unless he forces us to choose. Nothing is impossible for God. Amen? God created time. He created space. That'll give you a headache right there. He created, so there was no, spa, no, there was no space until he said there was, well, what was there? I don't know until we get to heaven. Amen? God created it, and so because he is outside of time and space, he knows the beginning from the end. He knows all things. He knows what choice you're going to make, but he did not make you choose it. Anybody struggling with that? We should not have to. It's so simple to me. 
that God can know and still give us free will. Amen? And that's what happened here. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. I've seen the man that Jacob's going to be. I know the man that Esau is going to be. I know that one's going to not be perfect, but he's going to serve me. And I know the other one's going to reject me. Esau was a man of the flesh. What did he sell his birthright for? A bowl of what? A bowl of soup. He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Is this guy a man of the flesh or what? He comes in from a hard day at work, and that smells pretty good over there. What do you got? Got me some soup, right? And he says, hey, uh, he says, I'll, I'll give you a bowl of it for your birthright. Now, your birthright meant that you were the one that was given the things of your father. It meant that you were the head of the household going forward. It meant that you were the spiritual leader in your home, and he traded it all for a bowl of soup. Esau, a man of the flesh. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Jacob wrestled with God, and his name went from heel catcher, deceiver, to governed by God. His name became Israel. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Again, it doesn't mean that God made us choose or made them choose, but God knew their hearts beforehand. And he's also speaking of the generation because Esau's descendants were called the Edomites. How many Edomites we got walking around today? That'd be none. Wiped out. Why? Because children of the flesh. And again, you may not think it seems fair choosing one over another even before they were born, but God chose them knowing whether or not they would accept or reject Him. Let's take a look at God's mercy and His justice. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is, God un- is there unrighteousness with God? Is God unfair? That's what it's saying. Is He unrighteous? The answer, of course, is absolutely not. It is, is it unjust of God to give Jacob the blessing rather than Esau, to accept only believers and to reject those who are in rebellion? God's mercy. Let me ask you a question. Sometimes people ask you this. Tell me if you've heard this question before. If God is good, why does he send people to hell? Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Okay? Well, here's my question. Since God is good, why does He let any bad people into heaven? Because guess what? We're all bad. Amen? There aren't any good people to ask that question about. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Amen? So why does perfect, holy God allow sinful men and women like you and me into heaven? Because of His mercy. Because of the work of His Son. Amen? And so it's God's mercy that saves us, not our good works. And so we see here that God is not unjust. Verse 15, For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. Who does God have mercy upon? Who does He have compassion upon? All of those who will turn to Him. Nobody has ever come to the Lord and said, Forgive me, and He said no. Amen? All who come to Him, everyone, and ask forgiveness, He forgives. Every one of them. That's our God, amen? And some people would try to tell you, well, He's only going to forgive some. No, He'll forgive all who come to Him. And He will show mercy on every person who asks for mercy. And He will show compassion on every person who asks for compassion. And the only ones who will not experience His mercy and will not experience His compassion are those who don't want it. Those who reject Him. He will have mercy upon those who come to Him. Again, He's a good and great God, and He loves us, and even though we don't deserve it, He allows us into heaven. When did God say this? When He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. You know when He said that? When they were dancing around the golden calf. Is He God of mercy or what? He comes down, you know, God's there, and they're dancing around the golden calf, and you know, they're partying, having a rage, or they're lit out of their minds. And what does he say? All who come, and what did Moses say? You want, to, you want to be on the Lord's side? Just come to me. 3,000 people died, but out of the millions, look how much mercy our God had. Amen? He came down in the midst of their sin and showed mercy upon them. He came down in the midst of our sin and showed mercy to us. Amen? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not because of our good works. Mercy is not something we earn. Look at verse 16. So then, it is not of him who wills, 
nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's not by our resolve, our good works, our fleshly determination. It's by God's grace and mercy that we're saved. Amen? Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he, whom he wills, he hardens. Now again, people struggle with this. Does this seem fair? That God would have mercy on some and harden the hearts of others. Doesn't it say repeatedly in Exodus that he hardened Pharaoh's heart? Does it say that? It says it ten times. But you know what it says ten times before it says the Lord hardened his heart? Ten times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God does not harden the hearts of those who are seeking after him. He shows them mercy. He hardens the hearts of those who reject him. And then he shows long-suffering that he might use even them for his glory, even those who reject him. Pharaoh said, I don't want it. How many miracles did Pharaoh see? How many plagues did Pharaoh see? He had the word of God delivered to him clearly. And what did he do? I'm not interested. I'm the, don't you know who I am? I'm the Pharaoh, right? You'll bring her. I'm the Pharaoh, right? And the reality is that he was a man in desperate need of a Savior, but because of his pride, he would not accept grace and mercy. And God hardened his heart only after he first hardened his heart. Again, God used what he knew a Pharaoh's response would be as an opportunity to show his power. God is just. God is merciful. None will stand before God on Judgment Day with any accusation of unfairness. Nobody's going to stand before God on Judgment Day and say, you weren't fair to me. Nobody will all stand before him and say, God, you were extreme, extremely merciful and gracious to me. Lord, I, didn't, I don't deserve it. Amen? Nobody will stand and say, you weren't fair. He's more than fair. He's more than gracious. But look at what it says here. Look at the potter and the clay. were formed into to his glory. Look what it says. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? A lot of people do not want to take responsibility for their actions, so they blame it on God. God, why did you make me like this? This isn't fair. You know what, guys? We're clay. He's the potter. You ever seen a vase turn around and talk to the, Man, what do you think, right? We got, he is the potter. We are the clay. We are simply instruments in his hands. We cannot question God. We should never question God. I hear people say, oh, I think it's healthy to question God. I don't. I think it's really unhealthy to question God. Amen? No thanks. God knows what's best. He is faithful. He's infinite God. I'm finite man. I'm dirt. Right? I'm clay. And what's awesome is that he takes dirt like me and dirt like you, and he forms us into something that he can use for his glory. And who are we to turn to him and question what he has made of us? And so that's what he's talking about here. Who am I? Who are you to argue with God? Rather than fight against God, question why or, or how he's molding us, we need to learn to trust in his sovereignty. I could worry about placing my life in his hands. I could worry about his sovereignty. But you know what? If you guys will look at the hands that are molding you, you know what you will see? You will see hands that are pierced with nails that suffered in your place. And it's very easy to submit to one who loves you so much he'd rather die than live without you. You know what? When my hands are in the hands of someone who loves me, there's joy and there's peace there. Amen? You know, when I was a little kid, I never worried about where food was coming from because I knew my mom and dad loved me and they were going to take care of me. I never once thought about it. I never had a problem submitting to them in, the, in that sense, I mean, of course, I was a rebellious kid like everybody, but I knew that they loved me and they would take care of me. And so much more is true with our Heavenly Father. You know, we should, it should be so easy to submit to Him willing, realizing how much He loves us. He loves me so much. It should be so easy for me to just submit. If He loves me enough to die for me, I can trust Him with my life to do with it whatever He wishes. Verse 22. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory or vessels of His mercy, which He had pre prepared beforehand for His glory? 
God was long-suffering with Pharaoh because he wanted to use even his rebellion as an opportunity to reveal to those around him his mercy. He reviews this rebellious, he used this rebellious man who turned away from him as an opportunity to show a picture of God's grace. God wants to, to bestow mercy upon you as a vessel. He prepares and molds and fits you for his glory. He wants you to know his touch and experience his love. God offers you mercy through Christ and you can accept it or reject it. Because again, we have both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. There's not just one or the other. It's not man's responsibility, we earn it on our own, and it's not God's sovereignty alone that he forces it upon us. He loves us, and we must do something with him. Verse 24, even us whom he called, not only the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, that there shall be sons of the living God. Who's he talking about? The Gentiles. And he said, of those who are not my people, they will become my people. And you know what's awesome? Remember those promises we saw? We're almost done here. Remember those promises we saw in the beginning? Remember the promises we saw for Israel? What were they? Let me remind you. Adopted. His glory in their presence. Having his word. Having the privilege of serving him. Having his promises. Knowing the Father and fellowship with the Son. Who's that apply to now? Us. The things that Israel rejected have been given to us, his children. Amen? Because he called us, who were not of his children, to become his children. And that's what this says right here. We have become sons and daughters, not the son or the daughter, but sons and daughters of the living God. There's only one son of God, it's Jesus, but we are his children. Amen? Adopted into his family. And it's no longer for, for those who are chosen in the flesh, but those of us who've been born again in the Spirit, that we've become children of God. Last few verses. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. What's this talking about? I believe this refers to the end times and the tribulation. That though the Jews will num have numbered as the sand of the sea, there is a remnant that will be saved, and praise God for that. Most of the Jews in the end times, sadly, will be duped by the Antichrist, but not all of them will. And God will continue to show His mercy. As we know, 144,000, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel will be saved. They will become mighty witnesses. Many will literally give up their lives because they will see Him whom they have pierced and realize that it's Jesus Christ, that He is the Messiah. Amen? And so we need to continue to pray for Israel that God would continue to do a work there. Verse 29. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have been, become like Sodom, and we would have been like Gomorrah. The word there, Sabbath, means the Lord of hosts. And God did leave a seed or a remnant within the Jewish people that would serve Him. Lastly, righteousness comes by faith, not by the law. So the first 30 verses, 29 verses, have talked about God's sovereignty. These last three verses talk about human responsibility. Look what it says. What shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. You know what can't save you? The law. You can be the best person in the world. Compared, if God graded on a curve, you might be doing just fine. You might be better than most, but God doesn't grade at the curve. He grades where? At the cross. He doesn't grade on the curve. He doesn't have a big thing and, okay, the top half goes to heaven and the bottom half goes to hell. Here's the line. Aren't you glad? Amen? You'd be, like, glad when other people blew it, right? Oh, did you see that guy I killed for? Oh, I'm ahead of him. Oh, oh, I saw that guy. He's yelling at Oh, I'm ahead of him. More brownie points than that guy. You'd be stoked when people did bad. You'd be like, all right, that helps me, right? But the reality is that God doesn't grade on the curve, and he doesn't grade us based on how much we can keep the law, but he grades at the cross, amen? And either you accept him there or you reject him there. And it says that right there in that verse, they stumbled at the stumbling stone. The Bible says the cross of Christ is a what? It's a stone of stumbling. And 
devout Jews today still are trying to keep the law. You know how many laws they have to keep now? Last I heard it was 262. How's that working out? I know what 10 of them are. You're not making those. Amen? And the reality is, the reality is that if you're trying to be good enough to earn God's favor, you never can be. And that's why it's not about our good works, but it's about His grace, and it's about us understanding our need for a Savior. You know, it's interesting to me, the Jews today think they can get there on their good works, but what are they trying to do right now? Rebuild what? The temple. Why do they want to rebuild the temple so they can reinstitute, reinstitute what? The sacrifices. Why do we need sacrifices if we can get there on our good works? I ask them that. Help me out with this. You're trying to find a red heifer. You're trying to rebuild the temple so you can have sacrifices again, but you can get there on your good works. How does that make any sense? You're trying, you realize that there must be shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. And salvation does not come by keeping the law, but by faith in Christ. Again, the sovereignty of God, but the responsibility of man. And lastly, in verse 33, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and the rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What will keep us from being put to shame? What will keep us from separation from God? What will keep us from eternity and weeping and gnashing of teeth? What does it say? Whoever believes on Him. It doesn't say whoever's been elected. It doesn't say whoever's been chosen. It doesn't say whoever's been predetermined or predestined. It says whoever believes on Him. Amen? And so there is the sovereignty of God, but there is the responsibility of man. He desires that none should perish, no, not one. What are you going to do with that? He reaches out to every one of us today and says, I love you so much, I'd rather die than live without you. Here's eternal life. It's available to you. But now you must decide. He will never force it on you. Our God is sovereign. He's in control. He knows all things. But we still have responsibility to accept or reject the great work of the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you for the fact that you are sovereign and in control. That you're a great and an awesome God that you love us so very much. I thank you, Lord, that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we're not saved because of keeping the law that's impossible, but we're saved by faith in Christ who paid the price. Lord, I, I pray that we would be like Paul and have a burden for those who don't know you. That our heart would be broken. That we can rejoice in our salvation and at the same time be burdened for the lost. Lord, I also pray that we would truly understand the sovereignty of God that you are righteous, that you are faithful, that you are merciful, that you do desire that none should perish. But at the same time, as we understand your sovereignty, that we would also understand our responsibility to respond to you and to the awesome work of the cross. Lord, help us to, to be the men and women of God you want us to be, to serve you with our whole heart, to see the world through your eyes. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. 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 Let's stand and close the worship song.